Well, good morning, everyone. Happy Palm Sunday, Triumphal Entry Sunday. It's good to be here with you this morning, worshiping with, with you. Uh, if you have your Bibles, flip over to Hebrews chapter 9, verses 1 through 10. We're going to be hanging out there uh, this morning. We're going to be reading it together just to start off, just to give us a little context, give us the whole picture before we dive in section by section. And in an Eastern context, whenever a group of people approached a text, a scripture, whenever an Eastern group of people wanted to read God's word and have respect for God's word, they did two things that we're going to do this morning. Number one, they stood. So if you're able, would you please stand with me as we read it this morning? The other thing they would do every time they approached the scripture is that they would recommit themselves to God. And they would do this by reciting the Shema. Shema is the Hebrew word for hear or to listen. It comes from Deuteronomy 6, 4. Uh, it's uh, considered uh, in the Eastern context to be the most important, the greatest commandment there is. And so when the Pharisees asked Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? Jesus quotes the Shema. So say it after me uh, together. Let's recommit ourselves before we read the text. So, uh, hear, O Israel. The Lord is our God. The Lord alone. Love the Lord your God. With all your heart. With all your soul. With all your might. Amen. These are the very words of God. Hebrews 9. Now the first covenant had regulations for worship, and also an earthly sanctuary. A tabernacle was set up. In its first room were the lampstand and the table with its consecrated bread. It was called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a room called the most holy place, which had the golden altar of incense and the gold-covered Ark of the Covenant. This Ark contained the gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff that had budded, and the stone tablets of the covenant. Above the ark were the cherubim of the glory overshadowing the atonement cover. But we cannot discuss these things in detail right now. Thank you, author of Hebrews. When everything had been arranged like this, the priests entered regularly into the outer room to carry on their ministry. But only the high priest entered the inner room, and that only once a year, and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins the people had committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed, as long as the first tabernacle was still functioning. This is an illustration of the present time indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. They are only a matter of food and drink in various ceremonial washings, external regulations applying until the time of the new order. These are the very words of God. You may be seated. A few months ago, um, our family was invited to a party, and uh, we were excited to go, except for the fact that we had to bring our kids, which always means that the party isn't quite as, as fun as it was going to be. And, and one of the reasons why is because you have to manage your children, particularly our children, you especially have to manage. Our daughter, Mia, is a runner. She will just take off the minute that she knows that you're not watching her. She is gone, and you will never see her again, for, at least for a long uh, time. Uh, actually, 
just last, uh, last week at the luncheon, we lost Mia. I don't know if you noticed, but we lost Mia for like 15 minutes. So if you saw us like frantically like walking around your table, we were trying to find our daughter. That's just sort of who she is. She's a free spirit. She just wants to run and explore, and she has no circle of safety, you know, from her parents. We don't know where that circle is. Uh, we don't think it exists because she just, she takes off. So whenever we're in a public place, whenever we're out somewhere with people, we're always, my wife and I are always looking, always making sure that Mia was around, calling her back, making sure she's coming. We just got to keep her uh, contained. But we were at this party, and every once in a while, she'll get talking to someone, and I'll get talking to someone, and there'll be about a two-minute gap where neither of us are paying, like, close attention to her. And she just seems to know right when mom and dad's attention is just shifted enough and boom, she's off exploring. And so that's what happened. I was, someone kind of got me in a conversation, someone got Molly, and about two minutes went by until the red flags uh, kind of go off in our head that says, check on Mia, where is Mia? And we both look, and of course, she's gone. She's gone exploring somewhere in this person's house. So I said, all right, well, I'll, I'll go look for her. We're used to this at this point. We're, we don't get too nervous about it anymore. So I began just kind of looking around. I looked at their living room, kind of scoured the room, didn't see anyone. I looked at the food table. That's usually where she is, getting all the, the treats and things like that. She wasn't at the food table. Kind of poked my head into the kitchen, went down uh, to the bathrooms, even sort of their other little uh, living room area, family room area, nothing. And as I just circled for a few minutes, I realized... Uh, Mia probably went upstairs. Now, you know, yeah, some of you, you know, there's sort of this unwritten rule that when you're at somebody else's house, you don't go upstairs, right? The upstairs is kind of like the private area. We don't go there. We stay down here, right? It's just we all kind of know that. Of course, my daughter is completely oblivious to these social cues, and so I'm thinking, okay, I've got to go upstairs to go get her. And I'm like, do I, do I, ask the host, what, what do, I, do, I, do I say something to someone? I just said, I'm just going to try to sneak up there real quick, and hopefully she's right there at the top of the stairs, and I'll sit down and, and get her down. So I kind of tiptoed, I kind of snuck around, I tiptoed up the stairs, and of course I look down the hallway, she's nowhere to be found. So I'm like, oh. So I begin quietly like poking my head in the bathroom. They had a den. I kind of looked in there. Mia, where are you? You know, kind of looking. I even looked in one of the guest bedrooms, nothing. And then I hear her voice coming from the master bedroom. And I, oh man, okay. So I'm walking down the hall to this room. And I'm like, all right, I'm going to just kind of get in there and grab her and get her out and down the stairs before anyone notices. Like, we're not supposed to be here. So of course I walk in and I, I look around on the floor. I don't see her. And then I look up and there she is in their bed. <laughs> not just like on top of their bed. I'm talking in between the sheets kind of it. And she has the biggest little grin on her face. She is so comfortable. She just wants the remote for the television. She's like, I'm ready to party. I'm ready to stay. She's in between their sheets. And I'm like, Mia, we get out of here. We can't be here. This is, this is sacred space. And she's like, what's wrong with this? This is great. This is the best party I've been to all week. I'm like, no, no, we gotta go. So I kind of get her out of bed and like try to like put the put the bed back, right? So now I'm like, like making the person's bed so it doesn't look like anyone was in there. So I'm like, okay, we're gonna, you know, like I think you fluffed the pillows this way, and okay, we gotta go. And we sneak down the stairs and I say, You are not allowed up there. No. I mean, you have to be very clear with Mia. You have to just say, no. All, that whole space, no. You don't go up there. See, she's oblivious to the fact 
that houses have boundaries, right? Every house, have, even if you have a one-story, two-story, whatever it is, there are certain areas of the house that only special people, the people who live there, are allowed to be in. In your, in your um, insert this morning, that's your first, uh, first uh, fill-in. We understand that houses have boundaries, Areas that only a select few are allowed in. We understand this at this level. If you had your own party, there are certain areas that you just throw all your stuff in and you close the door and you're, they are not allowed in that room, right? Particularly if you have a second story, really, like that's sacred space. Every house has boundaries. Areas that only a select few are allowed in. Now in Hebrews 3, a while back, we talked about the fact that uh, temples in the first century, tabernacles, this is where people considered the God of that temple to live. And so they would refer to the temple as the God's house. This is very common. In fact, even in, in the Bible, in the New Testament, we see this all the time that they talk about God's house, where God lives. It was believed that that is where the God lived. And here when we get to uh, Hebrews chapter 9, we actually find more information about God's house. And we actually find some of the boundary lines God has in his own house. So just like our own, back in those days in the first century, God had his own boundaries. God had his own places that were sacred, that only a select few were allowed in. So what I'd like to do is I'd like to walk through the sort of the temple area for you and kind of describe, in some general terms, describe some of, some of those boundary areas to help kind of wrap our heads around where God was allowing certain people in and where he wasn't and why and things like that. So if you take a look here at the screen, you're going to see uh, this sort of a, a layout of the temple. This is Herod's temple. This is the temple that Jesus, that was in existence when Jesus was here and walking the earth. And so I just want to walk through just really, uh, really quickly some of the boundary areas of God's house. So again, think of it as this is God's house. This is where he lives. This is the concept that a first century Jew would have in that. And that there are different layers, different boundaries in which God had established in order for people to come and go. And, and to help illustrate this a little better, let's continue to use the idea of house and maybe a party. Let's say that you're throwing a party and you invite a bunch of guests what areas of your house would you let certain guests in or certain guests not in? We'll try to keep that illustration going as we do it. So the first one, the first boundary we had is this blue area right here. This is called the Gentile court, the Gentile court. And this court was designated for the non-Jew. This court was designated for foreigners and outsiders, people who were not part of God's chosen people, God's chosen race. But because God loved the world, he wanted to give everyone access to his house, everyone a place to come and to belong. And so they designated this area around sort of the perimeter of the temple as the place that if you were a foreigner, if you were an outsider, you could come and you could worship God because God chose Israel not just to be a special people, but to be a special people so that they could be a blessing to the world. That was the whole point. It was never to stay here. It was always to be here so that we could go out into the world. And so God's house reflected that, that there was a place for the outsider. This is the Gentile court. This would be like if you threw a party, invited a bunch of guests. This would be the guests that were invited, but only were allowed on the back patio sort of thing. Now, I don't know why you would ever do that in a party. That'd be kind of strange, but this is kind of the equivalent. Let's say you invite a whole bunch of people to your house for a party. These would be the people you'd be like, thanks for coming. This is your spot here on the patio. You, you can stay right here. You're invited to the party, but that's about as far as you're allowed in. 
The next uh, court we see is this next one. This is called the outer court. This court was meant for Jews, but it was meant for those of lesser standing, different family members or um, women, things like that, who in that, those days just not allowed kind of pass there. You can definitely come in. You're, you're welcome. You're, you're part of the chosen family. But this is kind of where you're going to stay. This is like if you uh, had a party, you would invite a whole bunch of people, and there's a group of people that are just going to kind of stay in the living room the whole time, right? This is sort of like your space. You're going to mingle in the living room. You can go to the chip table if you want, but this is kind of where you stay. These are your like, like last-tier friends who made it in, right? You're not not on the back patio. You, you actually got into the, the house, so that's good. Uh, but you're, you're going to kind of hang around the living room area. That's, that's, where you, that's where you'll stay. The next one is called the inner court. Now, the inner court was for um, Jews of much higher standing, but particularly priests. Priests and Jews of higher standing were allowed into this inner court. And this is where you see where the altar was, uh, where, they would, where, where they would slaughter the, the animals for sacrifice and things like this. So you could kind of engage a little bit more. There was a little more hands-on uh, things going on in this inner te- temple. This would be like, um, you know when you have a party, you've got a lot of people that you're mingling with, but then after a while you just kind of want to hang out with like your good friends you know, and a lot of times they'll like gravitate to like the kitchen, right? All of a sudden you'll be cooking and you'll be doing your thing and like your closer friends will kind of meet you in the kitchen and, and the party's going on around you, but kind of this is sort of, a, a, you know, one more step sort of into the, in the inner sanctuary, if you will, of your home. It's sort of your kitchen area. It's, it's the people that, that are really close with you that come and maybe help you out or are there as you're, as you're preparing food. Um, this is sort of that inner. So just, again, notice the, um, the levels of accessibility here. And that's the idea, is that with every, uh, with every boundary that's ca- crossed, you get another layer of accessibility. All right, so we got two more. These two now pick up where Hebrew 9 is. The Hebrew 9 talks about these two particular areas. So this first area is called the holy place. The holy place. And again, here's where Hebrews 9 picks up the description. It says, In its first room were the lampstand and the table with its consecrated bread— This was called the holy place. When everything had been arranged like this, the priests entered regularly into the outer room to carry out their ministry. Now, only the priests were allowed in the holy place. And it was their job to do certain uh, religious regulation things in order, to, uh, uh, in order to keep the law. So God said things like, I want you to have a lampstand in this inner place, and I want it to always be lit. I want the light to always be on. So one of their jobs was to go in and to make sure the oil was in there, make sure that the lights were staying on in, on this lampstand. Another thing God said is, I want you to have a, 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 a table with bread on it to remember that I, I fed you in the desert. So I want you to always have fresh consecrated bread on this table. And so the priests would come in all the time and make sure this bread was, wasn't moldy and was making sure it was fresh. And so they had this sort of this job to do to make sure that everything within this sanctuary was, uh, was good. Now, it's funny because the author then says, we don't have time to talk about all of the stuff, which is good because there's so much beautiful stuff and repre- that represents these things. But he does mention the lampstand and the bread. And he says that they're always maintaining the lampstand, the lights, and the bread. And isn't it interesting that as Jesus comes and he's fulfilling all of this, he says, I am the bread of life and I am the light of the world. And through all of these minute details, we're seeing things that Jesus does to fulfill all of that. But those are just two in, in particular that are really neat to see. But again, only the priests are allowed in here. 
at that time. And finally, we get to the most holy place. This would be in your house, your bedroom. This would be literally between your sheets. This is where God's bedroom was. And only one person was allowed in here, the high priest. And he was only allowed in one day a year on the Day of Atonement to make atonement for himself and for the sins of the people. Again, if you're thinking of the party tour, maybe the sanctuary would be like if you had a, a private space upstairs that you might invite your, your, your very best friends to come up to. Maybe even outside of the kitchen group, there might be two or three select friends that are your closest friends in the world that you'd feel comfortable. Hey, why don't we come upstairs to the den? Why don't we come up to maybe a private area that you'd be allowed into? But the holy of holies, only one is allowed in there. Right? You, you don't invite your friends into, into your bedroom. You don't invite your, I, don't, I don't say to my best friends, hey, why don't we uh, come to my bedroom? We'll get under the sheets and hang out for a little while, right? It's like, no, thank you. That's, I'm going to pass on that, right? Only one is allowed in there. And so we begin to see these levels of accessibility to God that was set up through this temple, through God's house, the most holy place. Now, the div- now if, you, if you notice, the sanctuary and the most holy place, the holies, holy place and the holy of holies, the most holy place, was one room, but it was separated by a curtain, it says in the passage. It says it was separated by this curtain that blocked out the two and kept a boundary, a physical boundary that ultimately separated humanity from God. Now we know about this curtain of just a few things. In 2 Chronicles 3, we find that the most holy place was 30 feet by 30 feet, meaning that the, the, the curtain had to be that big in order to cover the entire space, 30 by 30. To give you a little perspective here, I actually, uh, this, this week, I actually measured out 30 by 30. And I realized that if you stand on this corner right here on the stage and you measure out 30 feet, you will get all the way to the edge of this corner. This is 30 by 30 right here, all the way up there. And so I said, okay, that that might be helpful, like to give you a sense. The curtain was that wide, but it was also 30 feet tall. And I measured as far as I could. and And before that happened, and I got all the way up to this, uh, this uh, chandelier here. And from where I'm standing on the stage to that chandelier is 14 feet. So if I roughly estimate, it looks like from the stage, it looks like the chandelier is about halfway, halfway up for me. And so roughly speaking, we're talking about the ceiling. So if you think of it in these terms, you have a curtain that goes from this corner of the stage all the way to this corner of the stage, and goes up all the way to the ceiling. Now try to picture that, if you will. We also have a few more things about the curtain, uh, not from the Bible, but from other Jewish sources. It's, um, it's been said that the curtain was the width of a man's hand. They estimate about four inches thick, which for a carpet is huge. A, a carpet, four inches thick that was hanging on it. There's stories that were told about this curtain. They'd say that they tie horses to both ends of the carpet and send them as fast as they could in opposite directions, and the horses could not tear this carpet. Another story says that uh, every once in a while these carpets would get dirty, and so they'd need to be cleaned, and it would take 300 priests to carry this thing. Again, 30 by 30 by 4 
If you've ever tried to carry a bounce house, you know how heavy those things can be. Now try 30 by 30 by 4 inches thick. It was, it was said that 300 priests were needed in order to carry it. So we don't know exactly how uh, big this, this curtain was, but it's safe to say it was very, very large, very, very intimidating, and was meant to keep us from God. It was meant, it was a physical boundary that kept us from God. So whether you belonged to the Gentile court, the outer court, the inner court, the holy place, or even the most holy place, you knew where you stood and how much access you had to God. You knew exactly where you stood, you knew exactly where you could go and where you couldn't go. And you knew how much access you had to God. But the reality of it is this. The curtain wasn't the real barrier. It wasn't. It was a physical reminder, but it wasn't the real barrier. The real barrier was us. The real barrier is us. Our sin, our unwillingness to obey, that is what separates us from God. The curtain was just the physical reminder of the consequences. It wasn't like that's the only thing keeping us from God. It'd be like, okay, well, I'll just peel it back and walk in. No, it was there. It was established. God said, don't go past this because the real barrier is you. You're what separates me from you. It is your unwillingness to obey. It's your disobedience. It's your sin that keeps us separated. That curtain is for your protection. It's not the separation. It's for your protection. It's the physical, tangible reminder that we are separated from God and that our sin separates us. It's the physical reminder of the consequences for our actions. And that is why when God did, when God did let us in, that once a year with that one person, when he did let us pull the curtain back and peek in, it was never without blood. That's what the passage says this morning, is that the, the high priest came once a year on the Day of Atonement, and never without blood. Never without blood. Because something had to pay for our sin. Our sins, our, our disobedience had to be dealt with. Again, we are what separated ourselves from God. Not the curtain, not God himself. It was us. And that had to be de dealt with. That had to be uh, rectified in some way. And so something had to pay the cost, something had to pay the penalty in order for us even to gain a little access, even for us just to peek our head in once a year and to make sure everything was still okay, make sure that the, our sins had been dealt with. It was never without blood. Somebody always has to pay. So aside from the personal and ceremonial sacrifices that would happen regularly at the temple, one of the things that the, uh, the priest did every single day, daily, was to make a sacrifice for Israel at 3 o'clock. Right on the dot of 3 o'clock, every day. If you lived in Jerusalem, you would notice, you would know that it was 3 o'clock and that the priests were performing the daily sacrifice for Israel. As just sort of a reminder, again, there was all sorts of other sacrifices, but if nothing else, every single day at 3 o'clock, you knew that the priests were sacrificing a lamb on behalf 
of Israel, just as a daily reminder of the consequences for that separation, the consequences of our sin is that separation. So what would happen is at three o'clock, they'd have a sundial or they'd have something. One priest would be holding a shofar, which is a Jewish horn, and they'd wait. And as soon as it hit three o'clock, that priest would blow the horn as loud as he can. And again, on the mountaintop, you'd be able to hear that sound throughout all of the city. And as soon as that horn was blown, the priest would take his knife and he would slit the lamb's throat. And he would take the blood and he'd spill it on the altar. He'd cast it and pray, Lord, don't forget your promise. Don't forget your promise. Let us, may this atone for our sins. May we have even a little bit, even once a day, may we have full access to you. And if you were in Jerusalem, you would hear that shofar blow and you would stop and you would remember the consequences for sin. You would remember the cost for access. We are celebrating Palm Sunday today, we're entering into Holy Week. We're remembering triumphal entry in which Jesus enters Jerusalem for his final week here on earth in his physical form. And Matthew 21 tells us that right after this event that we're celebrating today, so the palms and celebration, everything, and the very next thing God does, the very next thing Jesus does is he heads straight for the temple. And we pick up the story here in Matthew 20 when it says this, Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer. Now for the longest time, I thought that Jesus was upset because they were selling things in the temple court. I always thought that's what was, he was so mad at. He came in and said, why, are, why is all this selling going on? I should, we should be praying. We shouldn't be making money here. And so he's doing all this stuff. And as a kid, I always loved this. I always loved this story. Like, you know, running around Jesus, running around flipping things. Like, yeah, that sounds like a boy. Like, that's, that's a great story. That sounds awesome to me. So I always really liked that story. But I always thought it meant that Jesus was upset because they were selling. But that's not the case because buying and selling uh, in the temple was a very common and accepted practice. What they were selling was sacrifices. The idea is that if you were a foreigner, if you were traveling to it, and on the week of Holy Week, the week that Jesus was there, which was the Passover week, it's estimated that 2.7 million people would travel to Jerusalem for the festival. So when you have that many people coming, they cannot all bring their own sacrifices. And so they needed people at the temple who they knew these sacrifices were authorized, they were, they were, they were um, good, they were, they were going to be acceptable before the Lord. They actually needed vendors at the temple in order to be able to worship well. And so this was a very real need. This wasn't something they were doing. This wasn't like a bunch of men who were just trying to make a buck. And so they were kind of buying, you know, selling their, uh, you know, their vacuum cleaners at the temple gates. That's not what was going on. This was a very acceptable practice. These, these people who were traveling in needed these vendors in order to buy, in order to make sacrifices. So I always thought that Jesus was upset about the, was upset about the selling, but that's, that's not the case. Everyone was acceptable. It was acceptable to sell at the at the temple. So what's the problem? Well, we get a clue here uh, from Jesus uh, in a form of a Jewish teaching technique. I've talked about it before called remez. Remez is a Jewish teaching technique in which you say part of a scripture, 
but intentionally leave the second part out so that your hearer will fill in the rest themselves and the learning will go deeper. So an example of is this. If we were in a foreign country and we were sitting down to eat and they placed some really disgusting food right in front of us and we looked at each other and we're like, I don't know if I want to eat it. And then after a minute of looking at it, I look at you and I say, well, when in Rome, and I just say that, what, what's the second part of that? Do as the Romans. You know that phrase. I didn't need to say it. I didn't need to say the full phrase. I only had got to, I was only needing to say the first part, and then you filled in the rest, and that, and that understanding, sort of that communication went a little deeper because you participated in that with me. That's an example of Ramez. Jesus uses this all the time. He will quote, if you ever see Jesus quote a passage in Scripture, go to the Old Testament where he passed it and see what he purposely omitted. Because that's going to be the real point of what he's saying here. And so Jesus comes into the temple gates and he's furious and he's starting flipping over tables of money changers and he stands up and he says, my house will be a house of prayer, which comes from Isaiah. But he's only quoting half the passage because the second half reads, for all the nations. You see, what was happening is these 2.7 million people were coming and there was such a high demand for animals that the, the, and, and the, the vendors were in such supply, they had so much stuff to give away that they were actually moving into the Gentile courts. And they were setting up all around the Gentile courts and they weren't allowing foreigners, non-Jews, to come in to the very festival that's the whole pinnacle of their faith. They were not allowing them in. They were pushing them out. There was no room for all the nations. And so Jesus stands up and he says, my house will be a house of prayer. And everyone would go, hmm, for all the nations. That's right. In fact, that whole chapter in Isaiah is all about God's plan and his desire to bring all the nations, all foreign people, all outsiders back to himself. Jesus is not indignant because of them selling. He's indignant about where they're selling. He comes into Jerusalem and he begins to say, I am going to begin to start giving access to everyone. And it starts off right here. And so I always think it's funny that Jesus was throwing tables and, and pushing things away when literally Jesus was making space for the outsider. He was making space for them. He was literally clearing it out so that the outsider might come, so that the nations might be welcomed back because God is a God who wants to give full access. And then comes Friday. And Jesus all through Holy Week is gaining, giving people access. The woman who comes to, to uh, want to um, put perfume on Jesus' feet. She wants to dedicate him for his burial. And what do the disciples and what do the people around say? What is she doing here? She's not allowed in here. And Jesus says, no. She is welcomed she has access. You could say that Holy Week is a week in which Jesus, from the very first moment he steps foot in Jerusalem till his final breath, he's opening up doors and giving access to all. And so we come to Friday. And in Matthew 27, it describes the cost, the ultimate cost of access. From noon until three in the afternoon, Darkness came over all the land. About three in the afternoon, 
Jesus cried out in a loud voice, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. And at that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn from, in two from top to bottom. From the moment Jesus entered to the city until his dying breath, he came to give access to everyone. No more would there be boundaries. No more there would there be uh, places where we would not be able to access. I believe that moment Jesus cried out, the final time, the show far blew. And Jesus declares that the lambs are no longer needed. A new order has arrived. It is finished. Maybe you feel far from God. Maybe you feel like an outsider. Maybe you feel like a foreigner to this Christianity thing. You're new, you're trying to figure it out, and you're just on the outside of the Gentile courts just trying to get a peek inside. Jesus clears space for the outsider, and he tears boundaries in two. Jesus clears space for the outsider and he tears boundaries in two. No longer would there be inaccessibility. No longer would there be boundaries. No longer would there be uh, barriers that keep us from God. Jesus clears space for the outsider and tears boundaries in two. So whether you feel like an outsider, maybe you were a Christian for a while and some things happened in your life and you're just sticking your toe in the water right now, trying to figure out, is this for me? Is this, am, am I welcomed back? Jesus will uproot tables to give you a space. Maybe you've been uh, following Christ faithfully for a long time and you just, there's still just that Barrier. You just know that I'm not allowed in there. There's, I'm not allowed into that space. Jesus says to you, I've torn it in two. You are welcome in. Wherever you're at, wherever you're feeling, whatever. Maybe, you're, maybe you've just felt silence from God for a long time. Maybe you've been praying and you're just not hearing from him. You've been frustrated that you just can't get it all together. Jesus says, it's not about you to get it together. Because of the cross, because of my death, you have access. Not because you're good enough or you go through the right religious systems and now you're allowed to peek in. No, no, I tore it in two because of what I did, not because of what you did. Jesus clears space for the outsider and tears boundaries in two. I said before that um, only one person is allowed into the bedroom, but that's actually not true. Because while Mia is definitely not allowed in other people's beds, she's welcome in mine. She can not only go upstairs, she can not only go in my room, she can go between my sheets. Because the father gives access to his children. And when I think about my daughter, when I think about, just this weekend actually, I was, we were hanging out and she, she came in and she just jumped up on the bed, and I had told Molly about kind of what I was preaching, and she just kind of jumped up on the bed and snuggled, and I said, this is, this is it. This is what it's about, that the children are allowed into the bedroom. Some of my closest memories of my parents was getting to climb into their bed on Saturday mornings, right? Do you remember that? 
you get to come in. You get to come between the sheets. Because God is the God between the sheets. And it's beautiful and it's wonderful and we don't deserve it at all. And there's some of the most precious moments, those times with dad, between the sheets. Your father invites you upstairs. He invites you into his room. He invites you between the sheets. And the beauty is we don't deserve any of it. The beauty is, is that because of what he accomplished in this week that we get to celebrate and rejoice and be so excited about is not only that our sins have been atoned for, absolutely they have. Good Friday, we will celebrate that. But now we actually get to come in. I'm going to invite the band up as we close. Like I said, I don't know where you're at. I don't know how your relationship with God's been. Maybe you are just exploring this Christianity thing. You have no relationship right now. You're just exploring it. You're not sure. You're close. Hear me. God wants you to come in. He wants you between his sheets. Will you come? He wants it. Your father desperately wants it. And he has made a way for you to do that. The, the curtain has been torn in two. It is finished. If you've struggled, if you're, if you're walking a line, if you just feel distant from God right now, the Father wants you back. Come back in. Come back between the sheets. I want to be with you forever. He invites you upstairs. He invites you into his bed. He invites you between the sheets. Let's pray. God, we do not deserve this. Lord, that curtain was meant to be there and we put it up with our own two hands from our actions and from our um, unwillingness to follow you. And Lord, we couldn't even come into that room without blood and so you chose your own. So that we might have a relationship with our Father. So that you could call us in and invite us up and share those special moments with you. Lord, on Palm Sunday, we celebrate your triumphal entry into the city, and then we see all the ways in which you give us access again and again and again to the outsider, to those less fortunate, to those who were despised in that culture, to those who were seen as second class in, those, in that culture, and then to the very inner sanctuary itself. It was torn in two. The shofar blew. Lambs are not needed anymore because the ultimate lamb is here. And now we can come to bed. We love you, Jesus. In your name I pray, amen.